Welcome to Books in the Wild, the podcast about exploring books. I'm Carrie Schroeder. It is now December, which is just wild. And like many of you probably and hopefully, I've just been sort of hanging out in lockdown with my cats, anxiously awaiting the grand finale of 2020. I'm sort of hoping that those desert monoliths come into play as part of this weird life story arc, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So since we're all starting to cozy up for winter, I wanted to stick with some good old-fashioned Christmassy holiday tradition. More ghost stories. But seriously, unless y'all start suggesting different story ideas for me, you're just gonna get me being me, and I guess this is all I got. In early 1916, Mark Twain began working on a new novel titled Jap Heron. The book was published by a reputable bookseller and publisher, Mitchell Kennerly, in the fall of 1917, and the New York Times even wrote an article about it. The weird part about all of this? Mark Twain died in 1910. How could this happen, you ask? Well, the answer is ghosts. Or just a hoax. Either way, it involves a Ouija board. Emily Grant Hutchins was a writer who, like Mark Twain, was born and raised in Hannibal, Missouri. Emily was born in 1870, 35 years after Mark Twain. Her father, Carl H. Schmidt, was a city official and employee at the St. Joseph Railway Company. And her mother, Margaret Schmidt, was one of the first female physicians in Missouri. Emily became a school teacher of language in Hannibal before relocating to St. Louis, where she worked as a feature writer on the St. Louis Republic and contributed to such magazines as Cosmopolitan and the Atlantic Monthly. Emily and her husband Charles met Mark Twain in June of 1902 when he spoke at the Art Students Association in the Old Museum of Fine Arts in St. Louis. Emily and Mark Twain then developed a correspondence for a few years, The first known letter from Twain to Hutchings thanked her for transcribing his speech from the aforementioned event. The letter states, Riverdale on the Hudson, June 1202. Dear Mr. Hutchings, I ought to be very grateful to you for making that verbatim report and printing it, and I am. Longhand reports have embittered my life for 30 years, for no matter how bad a speech I may make, they manage to make it twice as bad as when I had disgorged it. And so I thank you. With my kindest regards to Mrs. Hutchins, quote, once of Hannibal and to you, I am sincerely yours, S.L. Clemens. Subsequent letters reveal Emily's frustrations with her manuscript being rejected by publishers and Twain offering advice and counsel. In 1914, a biography of Emily was included in the reference book Notable Women of St. Louis by Mrs. Charles P. Johnson. Here are some excerpts from that biography. Emily Grant Hutchins has gained a wide reputation because of her meritorious work for newspapers and magazines. She is a regular feature writer for the magazine section of the Sunday Globe Democrat, having filled its position for 12 years. Usually her articles are signed with only initials EGH. She was the mysterious woman about town, published in the paper for four years. There was considerable speculation as to the identity of the writer, but this was not disclosed until after the articles were discontinued. Following this, she wrote the Saturday dinner sketches using the name Frank Harwin. 
Poetry and fiction have been contributed by Mrs. Hutchings to the very many magazines, Current Literature, Cosmopolitan, Country Life, Current Magazine, The Open Court, Philistine, Atlantic Monthly, and others. Mrs. Hutchings is often asked for advice by people who want to write, and her inevitable answer is, don't. If it be the thing to do, no amount of discouraging will dissuade those inclined from doing it. But it takes a stout heart to stand the disappointments and hardships that this work entails. This publication was released three years before the controversial novel at the center of our story. It presents Emily Grant Hutchins as an already respected professional writer. Her letters to Twain expressed the typical misgivings and frustrations common still with every writer I know today. Also common during this time period? Talking to ghosts. The spiritualism movement was still in full swing during this time in the States. I promise I won't go too deep into spiritualism, even though I really, really want to, but it was a religious movement that started in the mid-1800s, mostly in Europe and the Americas, that believed it was possible to communicate with spirits really gained momentum after the American Civil War when a lot of people were seeking answers and longing to communicate with lost loved ones. Spiritualists would seek information from the spirit world through things like psychic mediums, seances, channeling, automatic writing, and spirit boards or talking boards. The most famous talking board is the O-U-I- J. A. Ouija board. You've probably heard it pronounced Ouija board, and for the life of me, I cannot uncover why that is. One of the legends of how the board got its name is that it is the combination of the French and German words for yes, which would actually make it pronounced we ya, which does sound fun. The other story about how the board got its name is that when the creators were playing with it, they asked it what it wanted to be called, and the board named itself, which is less fun and way creepier. But I also wonder if it's something like Jif or Gif or Nietzsche or Nietzsche, where we all know the correct way to pronounce it, and yet we just blatantly disregard it for some reason. Unless, of course, we're telling someone else, hey, did you know that it's actually Jif and not Gif? And then they roll their eyes. Rightfully so. But Ouija board is a brand name owned by Hasbro, which has now become its own proprietary eponym in that it's used to refer to any generic talking board now. Proprietary eponyms are another one of my favorite things, and that's when a brand name is used interchangeably for that item of any brand, like Kleenex meaning tissue or chapstick meaning lip balm, or Xerox meaning photocopy, Levi's meaning denim, Velcro meaning whatever, whatever Velcro is. Sorry, it really is one of my favorite things. Maybe I'll do an episode about proprietary eponyms and trademark erosion and also obscure collective nouns for a real titillating adventure. I'm single, by the way, and I live with two cats, in case you haven't guessed. So, a Ouija board, talking board, spirit board, they're all the same thing, essentially. You get a flat board that usually has the alphabet, numbers, and sometimes some shortcut keys like yes or no, hello and goodbye printed on them. And then you have a little pointer indicator thing called a planchette that's placed on top of the board. And the communication happens when one or more persons place their fingertips lightly on the planchette. And through either ghosts or the adiamotor effect, 
the planchette moves and spells out words. In the early 20th century, spiritualism was pretty popular. It really wasn't that unusual or fringy to attend a seance or psychic reading during this time. Just to name a very small few of the literal millions of people who dabbled in spiritualism in some way or another, we have uh, Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln, Thomas Edison, Pierre and Marie Curie, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Charles Dickens, and Mark Twain. As the spiritualist movement was especially popular with writers and artists, you know, those types, and in 1916, Emily Grant Hutchins met a spiritualist medium with some rather intriguing messages from an old acquaintance. From the introduction of the book, Jap Heron, written by Emily Grant Hutchins herself, and not the ghost of Mark Twain, she describes in a lot of detail the supernatural origins of the novel, which, although it is a little lengthy, I'm going to read the whole thing, because it's interesting, and why not? I will spare you my attempt at a Missouri accent, but I want you to know I did think about it. On the afternoon of the second Thursday in March 1916, I responded to an invitation to the regular meeting of a small psychical research society. There was to be a lecture on the cosmic relations, and the hostess for the afternoon, whom I had met twice socially, thought I might be interested, my name having appeared in connection with a recently detailed series of psychic experiments. To all those present, with the exception of the hostess, I was a total stranger. I learned with some surprise that these men and women had been meeting, with an occasional break for a few months, for more than five years. The record of these meetings filled several typewritten volumes. When word came that the lecturer was unavoidably detained, the hostess requested Mrs. Lola V. Hayes to entertain the members and guests by a demonstration of her ability to transmit spirit messages by means of a planchette and a lettered board. The apparatus was familiar to me, but the outcome of that afternoon's experience revealed a new use for the transmission board. After several messages, more or less personal, had been spelled out, the pointer of the planchette traced out the words, Samuel L. Clemens, Lazy Sam. There was a long pause, and then, well, why don't some of you say something? I was born in Hannibal, and my pulse quickened. I wanted to put a host of questions to the greatest humorist and the greatest philosopher of modern times, but I was an outsider, unacquainted with the usages of the club, and I remained silent while the planchette continued. Say, folks, don't knock my memoirs too hard. They were written when Mark Twain was, was dead to all sense of decency. When brains are soft, the method should be anesthesia. Not one of those present had read Mark Twain's memoirs, and the plaint fell upon barren soil. The arrival of the lecturer prevented further confession from the unseen communicant, but I was so deeply impressed that I begged my hostess to permit me to come again. For my benefit, a meeting was arranged at which there was no lecturer, and I was asked to sit for the first time with Mrs. Hayes. In my former psychic investigation, it had been my habit to pronounce the letters as the pointer of the planchette indicated them, and Mrs. Hayes urged me to render that same service when I sat with her, because she never permitted herself to look at the board, fearing that her own mind would interfere with the transmission. Scarcely had her fingertips touched the planchette when it darted to the letters that spelled out the words. 
I tried to write a romance once, and the little wife laughed at it. I still think it's good stuff, and I want it written. The plot is simple. You'd best skeletonize that plot. Solly Jenks, Hiram Wall, Young Men. Time, before the Civil War. Then the outline of a typical Mark Twain story came in short, explosive sentences. It was entitled, Up the Furrow to Fortune. A brief account of its coming seems vital to more sustained work, which was destined to follow. I was not present at the next regular meeting of the society, but at its close I was summoned to the telephone and informed that Mark Twain had come again, and he had said that the Hannibal girl was the one for whom he and Mrs. Hayes had been waiting. When they asked him what he meant, the planchette made the reply, Consult your record for 1911. One of the early volumes of the society's record was brought forth, and a curious fact that all the members of the society had forgotten was unearthed. About a year after his passing out, Mr. Clemens had told Mrs. Hayes that he had carried with him a much valuable literary material, which he yearned to send back, and that he would transmit stories through her, if she could just find the right person to sit with her in the transmission board. Although she experimented with each member of the club, and with several of her friends who were sympathetic though not avowed investigators, he was not satisfied with any of them. Then she gave up the attempt and dismissed it from her mind. A 20-minute test with me seemed to convince him that in me he had found the negative side of the mysterious human mechanism for which he had been waiting. The work of transmitting that first story was attended with the greatest difficulty. No less than three distinct styles of diction, accompanied by a correspondingly distinct motion in the planchette under our fingers, were thrust into the record. At first we were at a loss to understand these intrusions. That they were intrusions there could be no doubt. In each case, there was a sharp deviation from the plot of the story, as it had been given to us in the synopsis. After one of these experiences, which resulted in the introduction of a paragraph that was rather clever but not at all pertinent, Mark regained control with the impatiently traced words, Every scribe here wants a pencil on earth. Not until the middle of summer did we achieve that sureness of touch which now enables us to recognize, intuitively, the presence of the one scribe whose thoughts we are eager to transmit. That the story of Jap Heron and the two short stories which preceded it are the actual post-mortem work of Samuel L. Clemens, known to the world as Mark Twain, we do not for one moment doubt. His individuality has been revealed to us in ways which could leave no question in our minds. The little intimate touches which reveal personality are really of more importance than the larger and more conspicuous fact that neither Mrs. Hayes nor I could have written the fiction that has come across our transmission board. Our literary output is well known, and not even the severest psychological skeptic could assert that it bears any resemblance to the literary style of Jap Heron. Mrs. Hayes has found the best market for her short stories with one of the large religious publishing houses, and in the early days Mark Twain seemed to fear that her subconscious mind might inadvertently color or distort his thoughts in process of transmission. We had come to the end of our fourth session when he added this, there will be minor errors that you will be able to take care of. I don't object. Only, don't try to correct my grammar. I know what I want to say. And dear ladies, when I say D-A-M-N, please don't write D-A-R-N. Don't try to smooth it out. This is not a smooth story. That Mark should fear the blue pencil at our hands amused us greatly. The story bristles with profanity and is roughly picturesque in its diction. It deals with a section of the Ozark country with which neither of us is familiar, and in the speech of the natives there are words that we have never heard. 
that are included in no dictionary, but are, it transpires, perfectly familiar to the primitive people in the southwestern part of that state. When the revision of the story was almost complete, Mark interrupted the dictation one afternoon to remark, You are too tired. Forces must be strong for results. Somebody handed you a lemon back there. Cut out that part about the apple at fly time. I am not carping. You have done well. The interpretation is excellent. I was afraid of femininity. Women have their ideas, but this is not a woman's story. Goodbye. There was another meeting at which the revision of Up the Furrow to Fortune was completed, and then we went to work on the second story, A Daughter of Mars. As in the case with the first one, it began with a partial synopsis. Valen Leith, an enthusiastic aeronaut, was resting after a long flight when a strange aircraft fell out of the sky, lodging to the top of a great tree. The occupant of the marvelously constructed flying machine proved to be a girl from the planet Mars. Her name was Ulith, and she had many thrilling adventures on our Earth. The synopsis ended with wholly unexpected words. Now, girls, it is not yet clear in my mind whether we'd better send Ulith back to Mars, kill her, marry her to Leith, or have an expedition to Mars to raise the Dickens. The board, on which two short stories and a novel have already been transmitted, is one of the ordinary varieties, a polished surface over which the planchette glides to indicate the letters of the alphabet and the figures from 1 to 10. In the main, our diction comes without any apparent need for marks of punctuation. Occasionally the words quotation marks or put that in quotes would be interjected. As I pronounce the words for the man who was keeping our record, seemed to indicate a direct statement. The planchette whirled under our fingers and traced the crisp statement. I meant that for a question. When I told my husband of these grippingly intimate evidences of unseen personality, it occurred to him that a complete set of punctuation marks, carefully applied in India ink, where the pointer of the planchette could pick them out as were required, would facilitate the transmission of the sustained narrative. To him, it seemed that the absence of these marks on the board must be maddening, especially to Mark Twain, whose thought could be hopelessly distorted by the omission of so trivial a thing as a comma, and whose subtle use of the colon was known to all the clan of printers. Before our next meeting and the board, it had been dully adorned with ten of the most important marks, including the hyphen and the M dash. The comma was at the head of the right-hand column and the apostrophe at the bottom. My husband, Mrs. Hayes, and I knew exactly what all these markings mean, yet we had some confusion because Mark insisted on using the comma when he had wished to indicate a possessive case. The sentence was this as I understood it. I was not wont to disobey my father, comma, s command. Quote. Instantly, my husband, who had become interested and had taken the place of our first amanuensis, perceived that I had made a mistake. When I pronounced the combination father, comma, scamand. But, I defended myself, the pointer went to the comma. I can see now that it should have been an apostrophe. As I spoke, the pointer of the planchette traced the words on the board. Edwin did a pretty piece of work, but that apostrophe is too far down. I am in danger of falling off the board every time I make a run for it. The result was that another apostrophe was placed in the middle of the board, directly under the letter S. We had a yet more startling evidence of an outside personality, one dependent on us for his means of communication, but wholly independent of our thought and knowledge. Mark had dictated the synopsis for the second story and had enlarged upon the first situation. Then, as had since become his fixed habit, he indicated that the serious work for the evening was ended and returned for an informal chat. Mrs. Hayes and I had discussed the plot at length, 
and after my husband had read aloud the second evening's diction, we commented on some of the obscure points. Suddenly it became agitated, assumed a vigorous sweeping motion, and traced very rapidly these words. It is starting good, but will you two ladies stop speculating? I am going to take care of this story. Don't try to dictate. You are interrupting the thread of the story. There is ample time for smoothing the rough places. After a while, he continued, There is the same class of interruption, those who could write stories, but are not to write my. At this, the planchette turned to the M-dash and slid back and forth under it several times and spelled out the word stories. We were utterly at a loss until he explained. I was using that black line as an underscore. Again and again, we have had the word good in adverbial construction, a usage that is not common to either Mrs. Hayes or me, but Mark had told us that he liked it in familiar conversation. We have tried to adhere with absolute fidelity to even the seeming errors which came over the board. The second installment of the story gave all of us much trouble. Incidentally, it served to develop several bits of humorous conversation. When it was finished, we received this comment. I think that is all we can do tonight. I intend to enlarge upon this chapter before going further. The forces are not strong enough tonight. We will rewrite this part on Monday night. We naturally expected a rehandling of that installment, which for convenience he had designated a chapter. To our surprise, the pointer of the planchette gave this. I have changed my mind. We will proceed to New York. I will probably want to handle chapter second in a different way. It reads like a printed porous plaster, but that is no one's fault. Begin. The diction went smoothly, and there was no interruptions from the unseen rivals who had so persistently contested Mark Twain's right to the exclusive use of our pencil. Before the next meeting, I was urged to take a prominent part in another piece of psychic work, and to persuade both my husband and Mrs. Hayes to join me. I said nothing to either of them about it, intending to discuss it when the evening's work was over. As soon, however, as we applied our fingertips to the planchette, this astonishing communication came. I'm afraid that my pencil holders are going to get all wound up in other stuff that will make more confusion. I heard Emily talking over the telephone and making promises that are not good for our work. When I had been questioned concerning the meaning of this rebuke and had explained its import, Mark added, if we are going to make good, there must be concentration to that end. Get busy. We did. It was a hot July night, and the planchette flew over the board so swiftly that at times I could scarcely keep pace with it as I pronounced the letters. With other amunences, I had been forced to pronounce the finished words and to repeat sentences in whole or in part, but after my husband came into the work, this was not necessary. As much of the score of letters might have run together to be divided into words after the dictation was ended. Sometimes, when I had failed utterly to catch the thought, and would hesitate or ask to have the thing repeated, my husband would say, Don't stop him. I know what it means. Mrs. Hayes avoided looking at the board lest her own mind interfere with the transmission. And with less efficient help, the entire responsibility had been on me. When I came to realize that nothing was expected of me beyond mere pronouncing of the letters, the three of us developed swiftly into a smoothly working machine. Yet Mark was constantly worried for fear that my heart would be alienated and that I would go chasing some strange gods, as he once put it. When he had finished the fifth installment of the story, with the climax that surprised and puzzled us, he said, I reckon we had better lay by for a few days till I get this thing rift out. It has slipped its tether. I have had such things happen often. Don't get scared. We discussed the use of the word riffle, and then Mark became serious. 
I don't want to be disappointed in the Hannibal girl. I have been trying for several years to get through to the light. I don't want a false sentiment for a crew of fanatics to wreck my chance. I don't want to act nasty, but if you go into that other work, I am likely to ruin your reputation. You are likely to explode into some kind of mediocre piffle that is the height and depth of such a would-be communications with the other world. There is nothing to hold on to. So, my dear girls, if you want a future, cut it out. I don't want to command you all the time, but right now it is best to avoid all complications. It is needless to say that I declined the invitation. After this, whenever anything went wrong, the rebuke or complaint was invariably addressed to me. When there were humorous or pleasant things to be said, they were dispensed equally to the three of us, whom Mark Twain came to designate as my office force. Two bits of personal communication came within the succeeding week, which seemed to have a bearing on the whole mysterious experience. That second installment was undertaken and abandoned again and again. Finally, he said, I'm going ahead with the main body of the story. There will be another round with that second chapter, but not until the theme is fully developed. The second chapter sticks up in my throat like a cockleburr that I tried to swallow when I was five. It won't slip down or come up. We had worked patiently on the latter part of the narrative and had accomplished a big evening's work when the dictation was interrupted by this remark. It's going good, but I sure wish that I had Edwin's pipe. We all fairly gasped with astonishment, but we had no time for comment as the planchette continued its amazing revelation. Smoke up, old man, for old lang syne. In the other world, they don't know Walter Raleigh's weed, and I have not found Walter yet to make a complaint. I forget about it until I get Edwin's smoke. But for pity's sake, Ed, cut out that tobacco you were trying out. It made me sick. I hoped it would get you so that you wouldn't try it again. My husband, whom neither Mrs. Hayes nor I would, under any circumstances, address by the abbreviation of his name, Ed, asked Mark what tobacco he had in mind. He replied, That packet you were substituting, or that someone had a grudge against you gave you. The comparison of dates revealed the fact that on the evening when the troublesome second installment was being transmitted, my husband had smoked some heavy imported tobacco that had been given to him by a friend he had met that afternoon. The circumstance had passed from the minds of us all. Indeed, it had never impressed us in the least, and it had not occurred to any of us that our unseen visitor still retained a sense of smell, or that he could distinguish between two brands of tobacco. He had given evidence of both sight and hearing, had told us frequently that he was tired at the end of a long evening's work, and had made other incidental revelations of his environment and condition, but his reference to the pipe was more significant than any of them. Early in August, when our second story was nearing completion, the transmission began with this rather curious bit, which none of us understood for a long time. Emily, I think that when we finish this story, we will do a pastoral of Missouri. There appear highlights and shadows, purple and dark, and the misty pink of dawnings that make world-weary ones have surcease. Not until Jap Heron was more than half finished did we realize that it was the Missouri Pastoral. There was one other veiled reference to that story, which must not be omitted. We had planned a trip to New York for some time in October or early November, although we had never discussed it while on the board. One evening, Mark terminated his dictation abruptly and said, Emily, I think well of your plan. I asked what plan he referred to. New York. I will go too. I will try to convince them that I am not yet done working. I am rejuvenated and I want to finish my work. When I was in New York last, I had a very beautiful dream. I did not understand it then, 
It meant that my days were numbered, and gave me a picture of an angel bringing a book from heaven to earth, and on its cover was blazoned this, Mark Twain's compliments. Ask them what they think about that. I was so tired, so tired that I could not rest. A cool hand seemed to soothe my weariness away, and I slept, and sleeping dreamed. When I found that passage in the early part of our record, I wondered if Jap Heron might be the book sent to Earth with Mark Twain's compliments. I asked him about it one evening, when our regular dictation had been finished. The reply was a slow journey of the planchette to the word, yes, followed by rapidly spelled words, but old Mark isn't done talking yet. We assumed that he had something further to say to us, and when I asked him what he wanted to talk about, he gave this tantalizing reply. Curious? Wait and see. Then after a long pause, I shall have other work for my office force. The explanation of this cryptic statement was not given until we had completed the final revision of the story. Before I reveal what he had in mind, I wish to state that which to me is the most convincing proof of the supernormal origin of the three stories had been traced, letter by letter, on our transmission board. That they come through Mrs. Hayes, there can be no doubt whatever. My total lack of psychic power has been abundantly demonstrated. Mrs. Hayes has not written much light fiction, but it is necessary for her to write a story in one sitting. If it does not come all in one piece, it is foredoomed to failure. I know nothing of Mark Twain's habits, but in all the work we have done for him, the first draft has been rough and vigorous, and sweeping changes have been made by him while the work was undergoing revision. In the case of Jap Heron, some of the most important changes were made without a rereading of the story, changes that involved incidents which we had forgotten and for which I was compelled to search the original record. When I had substituted these passages for the ones they were to supplant, I made a typewritten copy of the entire story and read it aloud to Mark. Mrs. Hayes and I sat with our fingertips on the planchette so that he could interrupt. But he made only a few minor corrections. The story had been virtually rewritten twice, although a few of the chapters as they now stand are exactly as they were transmitted, not so much a word having been changed. The only change made in the 14th chapter came near the end, where Mark has suggested the line of dashes or stars to bridge the break between Japs leaving his mother and announcement that his mother was dead. 48 words were dictated to show what Jack actually did in that painful interim, the three sentences being rounded out by three words. There. I think that sounds better. Sometimes in the course of revision, we have interrupted by the jerkily traced words, try this, or we'll fix that better, or I told Emily to take out those repetitions. It has happened that he used the same word four times in one paragraph, and in copying, I substituted the obvious synonym. Occasionally, he did not approve of my correction and would rebuke me sharply. In the main, he has expressed himself as well pleased with the labor I have spared him. On the 10th of January, 1916, Mrs. Hayes came to my home for the last reading of the finished manuscript. When she read it through, I asked her to sit at the board with me. There was something about which I wanted to ask Mark, and I did not wish her mind to interfere in any way with the answer. Mrs. Hayes had had two curious psychic experiences in connection with our work. The first came to her when we were still working on The Daughter of Mars. It was in the form of a vivid dream in which Mark Twain told her, don't be discouraged, Lola. All that we have done in the past is just forging a hammer for the larger strokes we are going to make. The second was similar, but the man who appeared to her was a stocky, bald-headed man in a frock coat. 
When she asked him who he was and what he wanted, the man replied, Mark Twain sent me to call on you. At this time, Jap Heron was being revised, and she supposed that this man, with the striking personality, would be introduced somewhere. However, the story was ended, and no such character appeared. I wanted to know whether or not the dream was significant. I said, Mark, did you ever send anybody to call on Lola? The planchette replied, Yes, I sent him. We will do another story. We will wait until the smoke of this one clears away. I want Emily to have a rest, and many other things that will be adjusted. I would like to have my old office force. It has to be a bigger book than this one, more important. The man I sent to you was Brent Roberts. We dropped our hands in amazement. Brent Roberts appears twice in the Jap Heron story. He is not half so conspicuous as Holmes, the saloon keeper, or Hollins, the grocer. In truth, we had scarcely noticed him. I asked, Mark, are you going to give a sequel of Jap Heron? He said, no. Brent Roberts had a story before he elected to spend the last years in Bloomtown. Now girls, don't speculate. I am taking care of Brent Roberts. He added that it was up to Emily to give his book to the world, and that he intended to explore a little of the uncharted country when he was waiting for his office force to resume work. I once asked him, while he was transmitting A Daughter of Mars, whether he had ever visited the planet. He replied, No, this is pure fiction. I elected to return to Earth, and I wanted to take a taste of those memoirs out of my mouth. One other passage from the early record may profitably precede the actual story of Jap's coming. When we were in the midst of the most critical revision, my husband was commanded to read the story, paragraph by paragraph. When there was no comment, the planchette remained motionless under our fingers, but there were a few passages that escaped some change. Several times the changing word conflicted with something farther along in the story, and it was necessary to go back and make another correction. The revision sheets covered a big table, and my husband found it very exasperating to make the corrections. At length, Mark said, Smoke up and cool off, old boy. Smoke up and cool off, old boy. Perhaps I should apologize. The last secretary I had used to wear an ice-soaked towel inside his head. The girls and old Mark together make a riffle. Well, we will slow up. In my ambition, I've been too eager. It is hard to explain how great a thing is the power to project my mentality through the clods of oblivion. I have so long sought for an opening. Be patient, please. I am not carping. I get Edwin's position. We will be easy with the new saddle so the nag won't run away. I heard Edwin's suggestion, and it is a good one. We will go straight through the story, beginning where we left off tonight. That is what I intended to do, but that second chapter nipped me. When we next met, we had no thought of any other work than the revision of the story on which we had been working at frequent intervals for about two months. We never knew whether a session at the board would begin with a bit of personal conversation or a prolonged stretch of dictation. We held ourselves passive, ready to fall in with the humor or whim of our astonishingly human, though still intangible, guest. The beginning of that evening's work, it was the 6th of September, was almost too great an upheaval for me. The planchette fairly raced as it spelled out the words, Nosy Nopsis, then Amisjapsarin, begin. A severy, well-bred story has a hero, and as the resume's better material in Jap than any other party to this story, we will dignify him. 
I wanted to stop, but my husband insisted that I make no breaks in the impatient dictation. He had perceived that with the first string of letters spelled out the words, no Xenopsis should be no synopsis. And the name is Jap Heron, but I could not see his copy. And to my mind, the, spe- the sentences spelled chaos. A little farther along, I ventured an interruption, but we had transmitted the sentence. The folks in Happy Hollow continued to say Magnesia long after she left its fragrant depths. I had just spelled out the name Agnesia, and I was too deeply engrossed with the labor of the following letters to even attempt to understand the meaning. I turned to my husband and I said, it probably didn't intend to stop on the letter M. Whereat the planchette rebuked my stupidity thus. Emily, they call her Magnesia. After that, I contrived to get control of my nerves, and the rest of the dictation was not so difficult. When we had received the crisp final sentence, and stay he did, the planchette went right on with this information. This is the first copy of the first chapter. There will be 25 or more chapters. This is enough for this time, as the office force is a little weak. But results? Very good. We will finish the other story and dip into this with the next session. There will be better speed in this, for there will be no revision until it is finished. We will work hard and fast. Emily may need to meet folks she knows in this tale, for she knows a town with a river and happy hollow. I did not intend to start another story so soon, but other influences are so strong that they may try to dominate the board. This will not tire you so much. You must be determined not to permit intruders. If they are recognized, you will not be free of them again. I am pushed aside. Leave the board when they appear. Goodbye. The use of the name Happy Hollow forms a link with Hannibal, but if any of the characters in Jap Heron were drawn from life, they must have belonged to Mark Twain's generation and not mine. Mark never seems to take into account the fact that he left Hannibal before I was born, and that there have been many changes in that old town. The character of Jackie Heron may have been suggested by a disreputable drunken fisherman whose experiences I have heard my father relate, but there is one little touch in that first chapter that must have come from Mark's own mind, since the underlying fact was not known to any of us until we read Walter Pritchard Easton's article on bird nests months later. When we transmitted the sentence, the father of the little herons was a kingfisher, None of us knew that the kingfisher's home nest is a filthy hole close to the riverbank. The application is just too perfect to have been accidental. Before another chapter of the story was transmitted, I went to spend a morning with Mrs. Hayes. At the request of her son, we consented to allay his curiosity by a visible demonstration of the workings of the mysterious board, of which he had necessarily heard much. He hoped to receive some definite communication from his father, or the sister who had died in her girlhood but this is what he recorded. Emily, I gave those synopsis not for a guide, but to prevent others from imposing their ideas or confusing you. It might be said that it made it easier for you, but the idea is wrong. It would be easier to write a story direct. You have learned that this was wise because constant efforts have been made to break in and alter the stories. For this reason, I gave you the synopsis so that you could not be deceived. Now I'm going to trust you. I intended to advise you that it would be a more convincing psychic record if you have nothing on which a subconscious mind might be said to be working. 
The synopsis was for your protection, and has no value to the record. At first you had such a conglomerate method of working that it was necessary. You did not recognize the difficulties that were likely to incur. You were apt to employ temporary help, so eliminate. Just what was meant by temporary help was not apparent, but there was no opportunity to question him further, for at that moment we were interrupted by the arrival of another luncheon guest, and the board was put aside. We devoted two sessions to the revision and finishing touches to the troublesome short story, and then we plunged into the transmission of Jap Heron in deadly earnest. As far as possible, we sat twice a week on Mondays and Fridays. We usually worked uninterruptedly for two hours, with no sound save that of my voice as I pronounced the letters and punctuation marks over which the pointer of the planchette paused in its swift race across the board. My husband discovered early in the work that if he permitted himself the luxury of a smile, he was in danger of distracting Mrs. Hayes, who always sat facing him, and thus bringing about confusion in the record. Under Mark's specific instruction, she has schooled herself to keep her mind as nearly blank as possible for a woman who is absolutely conscious and normal, and the evidence that something humorous was being transmitted through her would be diverting to say the least. As for my own part, I seldom realized the import of the sentences I had spelled out, my whole attention being concentrated on the rapidly gliding pointer. When my husband read aloud the copy he had taken down, it almost invariably came to Mrs. Hayes and me as something entirely new. The story of Jap Heron, as it stands completed, does not follow the original order of the first 15 chapters. The early part of the tale was handled in a manner so sketchy and rapid in its action that three whole chapters and seven fragments of chapters were dictated and inserted after the work was finished. In the original copy, the second chapter suffered little charge up to the point of George Thomas's advent, with the suggestion that he might bring in some more turnips. Following the disaster to Judge Bower's speech, Mark took a shortcut to pave the way for the next chapter. It ran thus. But bad luck cannot camp on your trail forever. In the gladsome June time, Ellis married Flossie Bowers, and her dowry of $2,000 and her following of Ken set the herald on its feet. These two sentences were expanded into the more important half of the third chapter, almost five months after they had been dictated, and this without rereading the story. At another time, when this curious kind of revision was underway, Mark dictated the latter part of the second chapter, wherein Ellis Hinton tells Jap how he happened to be starving in Bloomtown. When he had finished the dictation with the words, My boy, that blue calico lady was Mrs. Kelly Jones, he continued. Emily will know where to fit it in. The fitting in was not extremely difficult, since there was only one place in the story into which each of the inserted chapters or fragments could be made to fit, but the original copy had to be read several times before these thin places became apparent, and I got no help whatsoever from Mark. Once, when I implored him to tell me where a certain brief but gripping paragraph belonged, he replied, Emily, that's your job. I don't want the Hannibal girl to fall down on it. On that second Monday night in September, when the office force had settled itself to serious work, my husband read to us the copy we had transmitted. The chapter ended with what is now the closing paragraph of the third chapter. The Herald put on a new dress, and the hellbox was dumped full of the discarded, mutilated types that had so long given strabismus to the patient readers of the Bloomtown Herald. 
The diet of turnips and sorghum and other humorous touches of the narrative overwhelmed us with laughter, whereat the planchette under our fingers wrote, Sounds like Mark, eh? I asked him if he was satisfied with the use of the word herald twice in that last sentence. He replied, You must excuse me. I'm all in. I told you I would leave minor points to your pencil. T-I-R-E-D. Goodbye. Our first acquaintance with Watt Harlow, as he appeared in the fourth chapter, gave little promise of the character into which he was destined to be developed. To the three of us, who laughed over an episode of the Vermilion Handbill, he appeared to be nothing more than a third-rate country politician. In the original transcription, he received only an occasional passing touch, until the death of Ellis brought him forth in a new light. We did not know then what Ellis had meant by that reformed auctioneer, for the story of Watt's connection with the upbuilding of Bloomtown, as it set forth in the sixth chapter, was not told until we were well along with the work of revision. One of the most interesting personal touches to be found only in our private record was introduced at the end of the fourth chapter. It had been a long stretch of dictation, and when the planchette stopped, I asked if there was any more. The pointer only gave us, no, M-30. Having no experience with printing offices, I was mystified until my husband explained that 30 on the hook means the end of a given piece of work. Mark once made use of the expression, the story contains a great deal of brevity that will have to be untied later on. This untying process is nowhere more aptly illustrated than in the fourth chapter of our original copy, a brief chapter that contained the condensed material of Watt Harlow's letter to Jap, the birth of little J.W., and Isabel Granger's first kiss. There was nothing about Bill's boyhood, no record of Jap's home surroundings, none of the amusing details of the printing office wherein Jap and Bill were learning their trade. All these incidents, which seem so essential to the story, were introduced when the first draft of the story had been completed. The seventh chapter, which has to do with the babyhood of little J.W., was dictated after the revision had apparently been completed. When I asked Mark why he never inserted it, the planchette made this curious reply. I was thinking that we'd better soften the shock of the boy's death. For us, through whom the story was being transmitted, there was no softening of Ellis Hinton's death. We knew from the foregoing chapter that the country editor had gone to the mountains for his health, and that Flossie had no hope. But when we had recorded the words, Jap closed the press upon the inky type, and gathered the great bunches of fragrant blossoms and heaped them upon the press to be forever silent, a great wave of sadness swept over me. I knew not why. The action of the planchette was so rapid that I could not think or question. It was as if the man dictating the story had an unpleasant task before him, which he wished to have done with as soon as possible. When the final words, at rest, Flossie, had been spelled out, the planchette stopped abruptly. Mrs. Hayes cried, My God, what has happened? And I looked up to see that she was very white and tears were slipping down her cheeks. Ellis is dead, my husband said very simply. He had foreseen the end, had grasped the infinite pathos of that old Washington press, decked as a funeral casket with the flowers that had been sent to usher into the new regime. When the evening's copy had been read, I asked Mark if he wanted to comment on it. Not tonight, Emily, the planchette spelled. I am all broken up. I didn't want Ellis to die. I tried to figure out a way to save him, but I couldn't make it go. 
When we met again on the 2nd of December, the dictation began with these words. I want Edwin to go back to the beginning of the last chapter. I left out a sentence that is necessary. It explains why Ellis left by rail. You insert. Then he dictated the passage relating to the new railroad and the temporary station. When he had finished, he said, Go on with the story. And the next sentence began, When Ellis went away, it was to the sound of jollity. The reference to Robert Louis Stevenson was new to both of us, and we have not sought to verify the incident. That Mark wanted to include it in the story was sufficient for us. The next chapter contained another accumulation of brevity, which was afterward untied. The funeral, the reading of Ellis Hinton's will, Judge Bower's candidacy, the nomination of Jap Heron as the ugliest man in Bloomtown, Bill's first spree and the local option fight, all these were sketched with the sharpness and sudden transition of pictures on a cinematograph screen. The following chapter was almost as tightly packed with incident, and in the midst of it, there was a break, with an astonishing explanation. Three evenings in secession, we had had trouble with the planchette. It had seemed to me that Mrs. Hayes was trying to pull it from beneath my fingers. Meanwhile, she had mentally accused me of digital heaviness. She uses the fingertips on her left hand while I use my right. As a rule, our touch is so light that the planchette glides automatically. On these evenings, we had left the board with cramped fingers and a general sense of dissatisfaction. Several sentences that were plainly spurious were afterwards stricken from the record, but we had forgotten about the other scribes who wanted a pencil on earth until Mark interrupted the story to say, I must ask you to be wary and sharp to dismiss impostors. Right now, there are more than 20 hands trying to control your dictation. It is very hard for me. I am disconsolate and powerless to help myself. If we do not watch every avenue, our work is spoiled. There has been a constant struggle for my rights. I only ask a little help, and you are my hope. If you fail me, I am undone. This illuminating outburst served to clear the atmosphere, and the three chapters were afterward expanded into seven, much of the same dictation being reproduced. It was as if Mark, knowing the difficulties on his side of the shadow line, had tried to get at least the outline of his story down on paper, lest he lose his hold entirely. After that evening, we had almost no trouble with intruders. The story of Jones, of the Barton Standard, came to us like a thunderclap from a cloudless sky. For the part which old P.D. Jones played in the development of Bloomtown and Barton was not related until we had begun work on the revision. In the original story of that near fight, Mark gave us a significant cross-light on the conditions under which he lives. The marshal had appeared in the office at a crucial moment, as if he had dropped through the roof or arisen out of the floor. Several times in the earlier part of that work, the characters had thus appeared without obvious means of locomotion, and I had called attention to the inconsistency, with the result that Mark had dictated a few words to show how or whence the new arrival had come. When Wilfred Jones shouted to the marshal, I demand protection, my husband, who was reading the evening's copy aloud to us, said, How does the marshal happen to be there? I don't see any previous mention of him. Instantly, the planchette, which we always kept in readiness under our fingertips, began to move. It dictated this. You might say, at this moment the town marshal, wearing his star pinned to his blue flannel shirt, strolled in. I have been away from the need of going upstairs or downstairs for so long that I forget about it. 
How do you get from one place to another, Mark? I asked. Now, Emily, curiosity. But you know we haven't any Pullman cars or elevators here. When I want to be at a place where I am free to go, why, I'm there. He took occasion, when our difficulties seemed to be at the end of his grip on his pencil, was once more firmly established, to make it very plain to me that I alone was responsible for the annoyance we had had. He put thus, Things will be all right if you don't give way to any more curiosity. In the beginning, I told you that I would not do. Emily wants to investigate too much. It must be one or all. Edwin and I understand. It was you that mixed the type. Lola must be passive. If she tries to watch for intruders, she gets in my way. So it is up to the Hannibal girl. I do not know, even now, how I could have prevented the trouble that well-nigh wrecked our work. It is true I had taken part in another psychic demonstration, but it was in a remote part of the city and had nothing to do with Mark Twain's pencil. However, I took no further chance with psychic investigation. When Jap Heron was elected mayor of Bloomtown and the girl he loved walked right into his astonished arms, it seemed to us that the story must be ended. We had forgotten that Jap ever had a family of his own, a mother and two sisters. When the drunken hag reeled into the Herald office, we were as greatly horrified as Jap himself was. I had put my husband's careful copy into typewritten form, and it occurred to me to get the opinion of the master critic on the story, not as evidence of the survival of the human mind after physical death, but as pure fiction. Acting upon the impulse and without telling either my husband or Mrs. Hayes what I intended to do, I took the copy to William Marion Reedy, permitting him to infer that I had created it, and asked him to tell me whether, in his judgment, the story was worth finishing. It was the beginning of the week when the issuing of the mirror consumed all of his time, and while I was waiting for his verdict, we received three more chapters. In the first of these, we had a new light on Isabel Granger's character, and came for the first time absolutely to love Bill Bowers. After that, nothing that Bill might do would shake our faith in his ability to make good in the end. He might be weak and foolish, but we understood why Jap believed in and loved him. We were jubilant when Rosie Raymond was eliminated from the game, for we feared, whenever we permitted ourselves to speculate, that Bill would marry her and regret the step. We assumed that the son of the much-married Judge Bowers had inherited a nature sufficiently mobile to recover from the shock of the silly girl's perfidy. While this unexpected development of the story was being revealed to us, William Marion Reedy sent me, in the envelope with the first ten chapters of Jap Heron, a criticism that fairly made me tingle with delight. Had the work been my own, I could not have been more pleased with his unstinted praise. I wanted to go to him at once and confess the truth, but he was not in the office when I called. Two of the seceding chapters were taken down by friends who had been let into the secret of our work and had asked permission to sit with us. It was the time of year when my husband could seldom spare an evening from his work, and Mark consented to break into his beloved office force arrangement for the sake of expediency. Three men and five women served us in the capacity of amanuenses, while the latter third of the book was being transmitted. The first deviation from our original arrangement came in connection with the dictation of the 17th chapter, the chapter that ends with the death of Flossie and her son. We were three sympathetic women, and when the planchette had traced the words, it was a smile of heavenly beauty as the pure soul of Ellis Hinton's wife flew to join her loved ones. We three burst simultaneously into violent weeping. 
I had never experienced more genuine grief at the grave of a departed friend or relative than I felt when this woman, who had come to be more than human to me, was released from her envelope of mortal clay. The following day, Mrs. Hayes and I were invited to the home of a delightful little Scotch woman who asked us to bring the planchette board. She knew nothing of the story and had no intimation of the personality on the other side who was sending it across through her planchette. Nevertheless, she was willing to keep copy for us. The chapter she wrote down is the 18th in the finished story, Jap's funeral sermon and Isabel's song beside Flossie's coffin. Even now, I cannot think of that scene without a swelling of the throat and a blinding rush of tears. It is needless to say that we wept when the dictation was ended. When our hostess had read aloud the copy, I asked our invisible companion if he had anything more to say. I avoided mentioning his name, for we did not wish his identity disclosed. The planchette traced the curious words. You know that air gets pretty damp for an old boy after this. I looked out the window. It was a murky November afternoon, and I asked, Do you feel the dampness of the material atmosphere? Like a flash came the reply, Emily, girl, you have been getting sob stuff. Then I yearned to get my fingers in his shock of white hair, for I knew that Mark Twain was laughing at me. But I had that which gave me consolation, for I had brought with me Mr. Reedy's letter, analyzing and commenting upon the story that Mark had created. Incidentally, Mrs. Reedy had asked Mrs. Hayes and me to come to her home the following day to luncheon. I had told her that Mrs. Hayes possessed a high degree of psychic power, and I consented to bring our board for demonstration. I wanted to see Mr. Reedy alone and explain to him that Jap Heron had come to us over that incensant board, but opportunity denied me. As soon as luncheon was over, we went up to that beautiful yellow room in which the best of Reedy's mirror is created and Mrs. Hayes and I placed the board on our knees. As soon as Mr. Reedy's fountain pen was ready for action, our planchette began. Well, I should doff my platy and don a kirtle, for tis not the sands o' dee, but the wearin' o' the green. There was a wide sweep of a planchette, and then, tis not the shine of steel that always reflects, but is the claymore that cuts. Both are made of steel, and both will mirror, sometimes the shillelagh. Yet the shillelagh is better than the claymore, for the man that is cut will run. But if ye slug him with the blackthorn, he will have to listen. This is just a flicker of high light. Bill jumped from the bed as the rattle of the latch announced the arrival of a visitor. My heart thumped wildly for a moment, then sank. I knew that the Bill referred to was Bill Bowers, and not the editor, whom hundreds delight to call Bill Reedy. And I knew, too that it would only be a moment until he must realize that the sentences he was writing down from my dictation were part and parcel of the story whose first ten chapters he had read and praised. I dared not lift my eyes from the board, yet I wanted to stop and explain that I had not intended to deceive him, that I only wanted an unbiased opinion of Mark Twain's story. In vain I tried to stop the whirling planchette, my voice so husky that I could scarcely pronounce the letters. It went right on, with a situation that neither Mrs. Hayes nor I had anticipated. We had schooled ourselves not to speculate, yet the previous afternoon we had left Jap in a fainting condition and on the verge of a long illness. The story we transmitted that day was the story of a gubernatorial election in a small Missouri town. Subsequently, when Mark gave us the intervening chapter, Jap's visit to the cemetery and the humorous incidents of the campaign, I asked him, why didn't you give me this chapter last Thursday? 
I thought that election would amuse Reedy. Don't worry, Emily. He understood you. He knows the Hannibal girl is honest, was the comforting reply. When the revision of the story was underway, and several fragments had been dictated, the planchette spelled the words, I want to add something to the Reedy chapter. And without further ado, it proceeded, The Bloomtown Herald did itself proud that week. That fragment was the easiest of them all to fit into place. At its conclusion, we were favored with a bit of pleasantry that seemed significant. My husband gave us the lift wherever he could spare the time, but on this occasion, a woman friend was sitting with us. She had written about 2,000 words of copy when the tenor of the dictation changed suddenly to the personal vein. Old Mark has been working like a badger and is pleased with the story. The girls and friend Ed are going as well as Twain ever did when he wielded his own pen. When Edwin lights up a fresh smoke and smiles, I know that all is well. But when Lola frowns and Edwin forgets to smoke, look out for leaks. The story has sprung, and therein was hissistinous spots. The last of the sentence came so rapidly that none of us had any idea what it meant, or that it meant anything at all. But we had separated it into words. The rain washes it thin in spots. I asked that that last part be repeated. Instead, we got the words, When a board is sprung, it lets in rain. It is Emily who has to hold the drip pan for the temperamental ones. Thank you for those kind words, Mark, I said. But if you think enough of me to trust me with this important work, why do you single me out for all the scoldings, when Edwin and Lola sometimes deserve at least a share of your displeasure? Whilst Hannibal girl, we know our office force, was the humorous rejoinder. The appearance of Ignesia was one of the keen surprises of the story, and before we realized what Jap's little sister would mean to Bloomtown, Mark interrupted his dictation with the words, Stop! Girls! The yarn is nearly all unwound. We will skip a bit that we will tie in later. But now, Bill sat doubled over the case, the stick held listlessly in his hand. Nervously, he fingered the copy, not knowing what he was reading. Without a break, we had received the brief final chapter, ending with the words, Isabel wants to call him Jasper William. The planchette added, The End. We transmitted no more that day, although we knew that our story was far from completion. The next time we met, we had another surprise on the coming of Jap's elder sister. When the 25th chapter was finished, Mark said, Girls, I think the story is done. It's pretty short for a book, I protested. By way of reply, he gave this. Did you ever know about my prize joke? One day I went to church, heard a missionary sermon, was carried away to the extent of $100. The preacher kept talking. I reduced my ante to $50. He kept talking. He talked on. I came down to 25 to 10 to 5 And after he had said all that he had in him, I stole a nickel from the basket. Reason for yourselves. Not how long, but how strong. Yet I have a sneaking wish to tell you something of the early days of Ellis's work, especially about Granger and Blank. But today, I have writer's cramp. So let's get together soon and make the finish complete. There were two more sessions, with the dictation of a whole chapter and several fragments at each meeting. And we met no more until I had put the whole complex record into consecutive form. We had a final review of the work, and a few minor changes in words and phrases were made. Mark expressed himself as well-pleased, and as a little farewell he gave us this, which has nothing to do with Jap Heron. There will be a great understanding someday. 
It will come when the earth realizes that we must leave it, and when it can put itself in touch with the heavens that surround it. I have met a number of preachers over here who would like to undo many things they promulgated while they had a whack at sinners. There are hard-sell Baptists who have a happy time meeting their members to whom they preached hell and brimstone. They have many things to explain. There is one melancholy Presbyterian who frankly stated the fact, underscore fact, that there were infants in hell, not in L, long. He has cleared out quite a space in hell since he woke up. He doesn't rush out to meet his congregation. It would create trouble and be embarrassing if they looked around for the suffering infants. As I said before, there is everything to learn after the shackles of earth are thrown aside. I would like to write a story about some of these preachers and the mistakes they made when the doctrines of brimstone and everlasting punishment were ladled out as freely as the little maid who danced as to the harlot. It showed the mind asleep to the undiscovered country. Can you shed any light on that undiscovered country? I asked him. Perhaps, but for the present, there is enough of the truth of life and death in Jap Heron to hold you. And with that, he told us goodbye. Emily Grant Hutchings still there? Thank you for bearing with me. Or maybe you fast forwarded. I don't know. I can't see you. Or can I? I wanted to include the entire essay because the whole thing is so strange. And honestly, when I tried to edit it down, I felt like I was altering Emily's voice a little too much. Plus, it's in the public domain, so why not? Believe it or not, this was just the introduction to the novel. The body of the novel follows the story of the title character Jasper James Heron, aka Jap, in a small town in Missouri just after the Civil War. Jap loses his father at the age of 12 and then runs away from home when his mother remarries. Jap then starts working at a newspaper office. There's a lot of stuff about the newspaper and the press, and then he marries and has a son who he also names Jap. It's not great, and there's not a lot of story in the story. But so after the story was dictated by Mark Twain, apparently through a Ouija board, Emily Grant Hutchins published Jap Heron in the fall of 1917. The publisher, Mitchell Kennerly in New York, was a British-born publisher, editor, and gallery owner who published works from Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman. Kennerly advanced money to his favorite typesetter, Frederick Gowdy to complete one of his earliest successful fonts, which Gowdy named Kennerly Old Style in appreciation. As might be imagined, uh, Jap Heron was not very well received. Not only because it wasn't a great novel to begin with, or that it was claimed to be written by Mark Twain's ghost via a spirit board, but also it wasn't even the only novel to be written by a spirit board during this time. Pearl Lenore Curran, who also lived in Missouri around the same time, and was also involved in the spiritualist movement, and a friend of Emily Grant Hutchins, had been communicating with a spirit named Patience Worth through the Ouija board since about 1913. Through these sessions, Pearl Curran 
published poetry and novels that she claims were written by channeling the spirit of Patience Worth, a woman who, according to their seance sessions, immigrated to the United States from England in the 1600s. A book about these sessions and writings by Pearl Curran and Patience Worth were published in 1916, a year before Emily's own spirit-guided novel. The New York Times wrote the following about Emily Grant Hutchins and Mark Twain's dubious, posthumous collaboration. The Ouija board seems to have come to stay as a competitor of the typewriter in the production of fiction, for this is the third novel in the last few months that has claimed the authorship of some dead and gone being who, unwilling to give up on human activities, has appeared to find in the Ouija board a material means of expression. This last story is unequivocal in its claim of origin, for those who are responsible for it appear to be convinced beyond doubt that no less a spirit than that of Mark Twain guided their hands as the story was spelled out on the board. Emily Grant Hutchings and Lola V. Hayes are the sponsors of this tale. Mrs. Hayes, being the passive recipient whose hands upon the pointer were especially necessary. St. Louis is the scene of the exploit, as it is also of the literary labors of that Ouija board that writes the Patience Worth stories. Emily Grant Hutchins, who writes the introductory account of how it all happened, is from Hannibal, Missouri, the home of Mark Twain's boyhood. And in her, the alleged spirit of the author seems to have put much confidence. Her long description of how the story was written and the many conversations they had with Mark Twain throughout the Ouija board contains many quotations of his remarks that sometimes have a reminiscent flavor of the humorist's characteristic conversation. The story itself a long novelette, is seen in a Missouri town and tells how a lad born to poverty and shiftlessness, by the help of a fine-souled and high-minded man and woman, grew into a noble and useful manhood and helped to regenerate his town. There is evident of a rather striking knowledge of the conditions of life and peculiarities of character in a Missouri town. The dialect is true, and the picture has, in general, many features that will seem familiar to those who know their Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. A country paper fills an important place in the tale, and there is constant proof of familiarity with the life and work of the editor of such a sheet. The humor impresses as a feeble attempt at imitation, and, well, there is now and then a strong, sure touch of pathos or a swift and true revelation of human nature, the sob stuff, that oozes through many of the scenes, and the overdrawn emotions are too much for credulity. If this is the best that Mark Twain can do by reaching across the barrier, the army of admirers that his work have won for him will all hope that he will hereafter respect that boundary. Understandably, another person who was not pleased with the novel was Mark Twain's daughter, Clara Clemens, married name Clara Gabrilitich. <laughs> Clara Clemens and Mark Twain's publisher, Harper and Brothers, filed a lawsuit against Emily Grant Hutchins and publisher Mitchell Kennerly in 1918. 
In a New York Times article on February 11, 1918, Clara stated that prior to the book's publication, she received several letters from a psychic researcher named James H. Hislop, who just so happened to work with Emily Hutchins and her psychic medium, Lola Hayes. A quote from the New York Times. While Professor Hislop was engaged in his so-called research work, says Mrs. Gabrilotich, he sent me many letters in which he asked me to confirm things which my father is supposed to have said to him. I answered a few of these letters telling him that everything he asked about was false, and finally the whole proceedings became so annoying I asked him not to write me anymore. It was so silly and stupid that I decided I could not waste my time talking or writing about it. Then I placed the matter in the hands of my attorney because I do not want any such book published. I suppose it would be harmless, but what would be the use of it? It is indescribably wild and foolish, and I am sorry that this and I am sorry even that this preliminary announcement had to be made. In one letter, the professor asked me if my father had seen a vision of my mother just before he died. I told him he had not, so far as I knew. In other communications, he asked me about little personal things he is supposed to have found out, things concerning pictures, trinkets, and so forth that my father is supposed to have owned. I found that I could not verify or confirm anything he had, quote, discovered, and at length I became weary of the matter, end quote. The lawsuit determined that publisher Harper and Brothers had exclusive rights to Mark Twain's writings for 17 years, and therefore, unless Mark Twain didn't write the book, as was being claimed, the book and all proceeds would need to be signed over to the rightful publisher. Eventually, the suit was settled when writer Emily Grant Hutchins, medium Lola Hayes, and publisher Mitchell Kennerly agreed to cease publication of Jap Heron and destroy all remaining copies. And while there aren't very many physical copies available today, the full text is readily available online on Project Gutenberg or Public Domain Review. I have links to those in the show notes. And so, with this strange little tale, the moral of the story? If you're gonna make a book written by a ghost, try to someone less famous than Mark Twain. Orion Clemens was pretty witty too, maybe try him next time. I'm actually considering reading the entire book of Jap Heron for an extra episode or something like that. I have read it, and although I wouldn't say that it's good, there are some interesting descriptions about printing and printing presses. Because the main character, Jap Heron, like Mark Twain, was a... wait for it... printer's devil. Man, I love when all these things get tied together. So anyway... If hearing me read the entirety of Jap Heron sounds like something you'd enjoy, or maybe not enjoy, but you'll listen anyway because you're a masochist, let me know. I don't think it would replace any regular episodes or anything. It would just be something else that I do that I don't have time for because I'm forever running on this hamster wheel until the darkness takes me. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to rate and review this podcast, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, I think. I'm not really sure what that does, but I have been told that it is important. All the links I mentioned are in the show notes at booksinthewild.com. My name is Carrie Schroeder, and you can follow me at coyotebonespress.com or at coyotebonespress on Instagram. 
If you have feedback or episode ideas, or you want to help me buy some kind of contraption to keep my cats quiet while I'm recording, that'd be cool. Message me. Samuel L. Clemens. Lazy. What's the matter? Stop it. What's the matter with you? Kitty cat, get down. No, get. God damn it. Get down. Come here. Come here and lay down. Just be chill.